Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed Tin Ha, Strategic Cloud Engineer at GCP. To be clear, this is only his own opinions and does not necessarily represent those of GCP. He was not on representing Google. But it should be the opinions of GCP because they're pretty much all rational and reasonable, in my view. This is a bit of a spicy intro because this was just a fun conversation, and I think you'll all really enjoy this episode. As Tin be on after he published a post on Medium originally called 10 Reasons Why You Should Not Adopt Data Mesh, which was later changed to 10 Reasons Why You Are Not Ready to Adopt Data Mesh. I had a few nitpicks with the article, but agreed with most of the points that he had made. You can find the link in the show notes. I do recommend reading it before jumping into the full episode. Tin originally came across Data Mesh when a few customers requested he help them implement data mesh. He really liked some aspects, but thought this wasn't for everyone. And as he's worked more on implementing data mesh, he decided there are some key concerns or or hurdles, maybe a checklist that if you aren't at a certain stage, you're really going to struggle trying to implement a data mesh. We went down the 10 reasons he gave in the article one by one to discuss. There were some useful tidbits that came out in addition to the article in the uh, conversation, most of which were from Tin and a bit of my own color and flavor added in. To Tin, there's a point when decentralizing makes sense, but monoliths always have a place. Decentralizing too early is just extra work. Make sure you aren't decentralizing just to decentralize. I think Andrew Harmel Law on his episode with Danilo Sato also talked about splitting too early or splitting in the wrong way and having to glue things back together. I think this is where it comes as well with decentralization. To get data mesh right, take a lot of learnings from implementing DevOps. Part of that is not having a gateway at the end for, and now you do these five things. You need to be doing documentation, testing, things like that as part of the data product development process. And you also need to automate as much of it as you can to help your developers not just toil. You need to find good ways to bring people on board and show them the value of data mesh. 
The organization needs to make serving data an important thing to everyone. Trying to only use the stick to get people to participate in data mesh will not go well. You have to find that that incentivization structure that is more of the carrot. Uh, you need to encourage the constructive conversations and keep your eyes open. Data mesh isn't a silver bullet. It's not that there is a simple pathway and boom, everything's solved. A huge part of data mesh is just encouraging the people process side to have much more conversations and work together. You need to know what you were trying to solve and then show people that you were trying to convince and you can probably get more people to come around. This is important to data mesh or for really any IT slash data implementation project. Take the good parts of agile and leave the bad. One year out planning is, is very bad. You can have a general pathway and North Star but you need to be able to measure and move the target based on those measurements. It's about agility and adapting to changes, shipping quickly, then measuring, then adjusting your plans accordingly. That fast feedback cycle is really important. You need to empower your people to make decisions and changes quickly. They need to feel intellectually safe and that there is a high tolerance for failure. Failure is going to happen. To do that, you also need to make a platform that makes failure much less harmful. You also need to let people feel useful and understand what is and what isn't part of their role. Are they doing the right things? Are they getting those things right? What is their impact? Making it so you're not just doing for the sake of doing, that people understand their part in the greater whole. You need to build up your internal data talent, whether they are officially on a data team or not. And the only real way to learn that, according to Ting, is, is by doing. So make sure you don't just outsource all the doing to contractors and consultants. Those people are going to leave your company at some point. You want to build that up internally. Tin referenced the Dora research that when you shift security, privacy, and compliance left, teams deliver faster, fail less often, recover quicker, get more done, and deliver more value. So you know, this is part of data mesh as well. Tin summed it up by saying, make it easy to get it right and make it hard to get it wrong for your teams. Part of that is making smaller changes that are more observable, build systems that make it relatively harmless to fail as failure is going to happen. I know it's all easier said than done, but I think you'll get a lot out of this and that it will really help you to start to frame your conversations as well with your own uh, maybe skeptics inside your company or outside and that you can take a lot of this and kind of directly apply it one-to-one and, and figure out if you really are ready to be going down the full data mesh path or you're just looking to find a way to better collaborate across your organization with data. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
super excited for this episode today. I've got Tin Ha here who had written a really great article about the 10 reasons why you are not ready for data mesh. Um, and we're going to go through that and, and talk about some other kind of challenges that we are seeing with large scale companies, whether they're doing data mesh or not. And, and I'm very excited. So Tin Ha is the uh, strategic cloud engineer. Uh, he works for uh, GCP on the professional services side, but to be very clear, he's not here representing Google. This is entirely his own views as we have with all of our guests. These are only people sharing their own context. They're not here as a representative of their company. So uh, with that kind of said, uh, Tin, if you wouldn't mind giving people a little bit of background on yourself and then we can kind of, maybe even a little background on why you decided to write the article as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I fully agree that, you know, I keep getting pushback of people saying, you know, stop gatekeeping. But I do think that that people need to think before they decide to go down the data mesh path and that mm-hmm. there are many companies that aren't ready for it. And so I, I really like that you started this conversation. But if you could give that background and on yourself and, and what led you to write this. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um, so uh, hi, you know, my name is Tin. I'm a uh, consultant pretty much for, for uh, Google Cloud Services. Um, I've worked with several customers on data mesh, uh, and it's hard, right? It's um, I actually encountered it by surprise. I, you know, I, I started working with a customer who told me that um, they've tried building a centralized data team twice, and to in in their mind it, it failed twice. And then they sent me, you know, Jamak's article on data mesh, and I said, "This sounds really good. Can can you please do this for me?" Um, and I had no idea what I was doing at the time, right? I ended up uh, leading that later platform team to build the data mesh, um, and they wanted to prove that the architecture works, and I learned a lot from it. I'm learning a lot still today, um, and that's the reason why I wanted to write this article, right? Like I, personally, I believe in data mesh. I know it works, um, but I also believe in walking into things with your eyes opened, and I've messed up a few times, and you know, I've observed people struggle, so, um, I, you know, I, conversations around data mesh tend to oscillate between, you know, it sounds really great, but like I have no idea how to do it, or it's pure hype, let's, you know, not worry about it, right? So I wanted to bridge some of this conversation and, and just give people the information, you know, so that they can have a more constructive conversation around, around data mesh and data mesh adoption. It's not to gatekeep, um, I promise. Uh, I, you know, I, it, it, it's like the title, I am a believer. <laughs> Well, and, and but I mean, I've I've talked about this as well, and, and and I'm a believer, and but I think having practical, uh, you know, approach to it makes sense. Of like, this is hard. This is not something that a 150 person company should be taking on when you think about full data mesh. So, like, I I think you're. Uh, you know, when I did a, a live reading thing that I put on on LinkedIn about it, and we had a little bit of, of conversation, it was like, this could be interpreted this way. And you're like, well, I didn't mean it that way. And so like, even with that, it's one of those where I think you, you kind of talked about the one or the zero aspect, right? Either either this is data mesh and, and we should be going full in on this and we're just kind of confused as to how or it's all hype. And it's like, no, it's one or zero. Like it's not one or zero. It's it's halfway in between. We have these sliding scales and who does it make sense for? So I'm, I'm very excited to, to talk about this because I do think all the points have, uh, if, if 
we frame them correctly, I think all of your points are very valid and very true. <laughs> so I was very excited to read one where I was like, oh, this is not just, this is hype and, and BS. It was like, no, these are well thought out points. So um, if, if you're ready for the, the grilling to begin, we can <laughs> jump yeah, into Go for it, go for it. <laughs> so your, your first point was you are not operating at a scale where decentralization makes sense. So could you give a little background on, on that and we can kind of talk on that? Yeah, so um, when I started with the data mesh journey, I had to figure out, you know, like where, where are the areas where I can learn from, right? Like what are some of the lessons that we can learn from in other areas? And part of it, you know, there's, there's this whole uh, comparison between data mesh and microservices uh, with, you know, the decentralized data ownership, loose coupling between domains and, you know, API-driven interaction. There's a lot of um, parallels. And I started looking at, okay, well, when does a microservices architecture make sense? When does a monolith architecture make sense? And, you know, monoliths are actually easier to work with in some cases, right? You can run a stack trace and see all of your function calls. Um, it's only when you have, you know, like, say, 10 different teams trying to coordinate changes to the same you know, spaghetti code base where you don't know where things start and end, that you have problems with it. And it makes sense to start defining domains and break out your application and have the team's um, autonomy to, you know, iterate within the domain and establish bound, uh, contracts so that they can talk between them. So there is a critical point where, you know, at a certain kind of scale, uh, decentralization makes sense. But before that, it is probably easier when you just keep it in one place and let's say if if all of your if you're in a, a small company and you're not really producing that much data and maybe you have like one person doing reporting right um there's there's not enough context to to really decentralize and make everybody responsible for all of the data science and all the data engineering and stuff and and the question i would ask right is are you you know are, are you meeting the analytics demand of of, of your organization, right? And if, if, if the answer is yes, then maybe you don't have a problem. <laughs> and maybe you don't really need to adopt the data mesh. That's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Or from my standpoint as well of the, uh, is decentralization your, your cause for not meeting your analytics demand, right? <laughs> Where so much of this is that the domains um, historically haven't had to serve data. And so if they're just kind of serving data chaos and they're constantly changing their application model and the data model is built directly off the application model and you don't have that kind of abstraction between the application model and the data model that you're serving, yeah, your application team, your domain teams are going to constantly be uh, not meeting the demands of the, the data consumers because all you're doing is breaking the things out from underneath them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But is that the, the fact of the centralized data team being a, um, the bottleneck? Probably not for a lot of these companies. You just have to get better at emotion of, and, and data mesh does push you in that way, but it's also you know, 10 steps further of if you're, um, if you're thinking about is the, the data engineering team, the cause of those challenges? No, it's, it's that if we just get the domain teams to have some idea of ownership and you give them some autonomy, if they want to serve this data in their own way, 
great, but they can also just serve it via the centralized team and that you don't need to, if you don't have, you know, 30, 40 domains, which is kind of where I think a full data mesh starts to make sense, right? You know, microservices, it might be 10 domains, but like that centralization isn't the bottleneck that it is on even the microservices side because your data shouldn't be evolving that quickly. So I fully agree on this one. I think, I think you make a lot of really good points there. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add on that specific one or should we jump to number two? Um, yeah, no, look, I think um, with respect to, you know, centralization, um, it's it's easier. It's easier for me, right, as a data engineer to just do things myself. Right? If someone <laughs> says, hey, I need this report tomorrow, <laughs> it's easier for me to just go into the source system, grab the data, you know, wrangle it and prepare the report. And like, why, why you know, what is what is the point of, um, you know, suddenly trying to get all these different people to, okay, now you 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 created the data, now you have to push it into the system and building all these API interfaces um, and then trust that they have to do it right, right? It's, it's a really um, different way of doing things. Um, and if you're going to have to, if you, if you really want to do it, you, sh- you need to know what problem it is you're solving. And I think, yeah, I, some, some people think that data mesh solves their problem, but maybe it is one of the solution, but there yeah. is you know, another solution somewhere else, right? Um, and that's something that I think there was a conversation in the comment section in my blog where I just said, you know, like your problem, it can be solved with data mesh maybe, but here's a few other ways that you can solve it. So have a think about that first, right? And yeah. then think about data mesh. It's, it's, is it a sledgehammer or do you just need a hammer? Right. Like it's like, yes, this you could hit that nail in, but it's it's a lot more effort to to hit it in and do that with. Uh, so um, number two, uh, you do not have a strong business case for how adopting data mesh will deliver business value for individual business units. So what, what were you talking about here and what like kind of what was the, the thought mm-hmm. process behind this one? Yeah. So um, it takes effort to build. A successful data team, right? Now, um, suddenly in the data mesh, we're expecting every domain team, whether they are the source, you know, system data producing team or the consumer team to take on more responsibilities than what they had done before. Um, and they're going to have to ask you, right? Like, what's in it for them? Why? Why should I do this? Why should I invest all this effort? Um, you know, how would this produce faster time to value for me to get the data that I need? How would it produce AI ML driven application that I need to differentiate, you know, myself in the market? Um, and you have to have a good answer. Unfortunately, there's always going to be skeptics. Maybe part of your organization is fully bought into the vision of the data mesh. They see it and it makes sense to them. But there will be, you know, a part of the organization that doesn't believe in it. Right? They don't want this change. They're completely fine the way it is. And you have to convince them. And, and to convince them in the business world, it just means, you know, building a strong business case. How, how is it going to have measurable impact for, for the team, for their bottom lines, so that they can, um, you know, invest and, and, and uh, spend time and effort into adopting this change? If Without that, it's going to be really difficult to maintain the momentum. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I, I agree and disagree on this point okay. because um, at some point, if your entire organization is going data mesh, those domains kind of have to get on board, whether mm-hmm. they, they whether they want to or not. But I do agree that the, the carrot is much more uh, valuable and valid than the stick. 
Um, I, I talked to somebody who's, who's going to be on an episode coming up here. And literally one of the things they do is um, when a team publishes a data product to the data mesh, they send them an actual cake. That's so it's awesome. cake, cake driven development. They send them an <laughs> actual it. literal cake. And so, um, but, but I agree with you that especially at the start, once you get to get moving, to get momentum, you can't go to the domain and say, your data is the most valuable and therefore you're the ones who are going to be producing the data if they're not bought in, right? You have to be showing that business value throughout as you're bringing on incremental um, data products. And because if you're not, if you're not bringing on, if you're not adding value to those domains and you're just adding additional work to them, then it's just not, they're not going to be bought in and, and there's challenges there. But at some point you kind of also have to say, if this person isn't bought in, if the, the leader of this domain isn't bought in, then uh, at some point we have to change out that leadership, right? <laughs> like it, right. It, you don't, you don't have to say that everybody has to be full in from the beginning because then you also have, you don't have the ability to evolve and, and get everybody kind of moving together. But yeah, I, I, I think I agree with you for the first 30, 40% of your journey, you, everybody kind of that you're bringing on has to be bought in. Right. Yeah. And you don't need everybody to be bought in at the beginning, right? You can start with a few, a uh, small group of people who really believe in it, prove the value and get people to be confident in it, right? It's about building confidence at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, once once you have a track record of success, and success means a demonstrable, you know, like impact, <laughs> um, not just oh, I've built a data mesh. So what, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then you know, other people will want to get involved, you know, regardless of whether they believed in it at the beginning or not, just because they want, you know, they see that it's making value, and and they want to get on board. Yeah, and well, and and you know, I think also playing to people's career aspects of you know, data mesh is something that a lot of people are very interested in. So, if you're uh, somebody who's like, well, I'm not that bought in, it's like, well, but it can be very good for your career if you can talk about how you implemented this in your in your team. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so uh, did you have anything else you wanted to add there? Or should we jump to number three? Okay, so. Number three is you treat data mesh as a technical solution with a fixed target rather than an operating model that continuously evolves over time. And before you start, I'm going to say 150%. <laughs> so what were you thinking about here when you said this? So, yeah, um, look, I think I've, I've, been in, I've been in programs where uh, before we even get started building a data mesh, um, people will want to plan everything up front. Like, like let's build the entire data domain model up front. We'll, um, you know, figure out who the leaders are in each of the domain, and then they're going to have to give us a backlog for the upcoming year. And then we'll, we'll just we'll race towards that, that backlog. And that's, it's a bit of a remnant of, you know, like kind of bad <laughs> agile practices. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's the point of data mesh, right? Like data mesh is about, Agility. It's about giving people autonomy to adapt to changes. You can't plan out everything, and and especially most of us are still trying to figure out how to do data mesh. So I think you know, like it's it's about shipping quickly, right? Observing the impact that it have, 
you know, gain confidence that this is working or not. And then, you know, if, it, if you've done it wrong, then change course quickly. That's, that's the most important thing. Um, and on this aspect, I think like adopting data mesh is no different to adopting DevOps. Um, you, you just have to, uh, it's about agility. It's about, you know, ability to change quickly. So once again, I'm learning, I'm leaning a lot from, you know, what can I learn from in other worlds? This point came completely from the DevOps world. Yeah. And, and I think uh, a lot of people um, haven't, like, if you watch the early Jamac uh, presentations, she talked about, oh, yes, and we're taking this from DevOps and we're taking this from microservices and we're taking this from, you know, it is about just literally saying what's worked in these other things and let's apply it to data. So, um, and I, and I'm frustrated that the word agile and agility are two are, are linked because agility isn't necessarily about agile as in the capital a agile, but the whole point of this, if you listen to again, Max early presentations, it's agility and scalability of data. So it is, if you do have that fixed target, it, you're not measuring and moving, right? Your your target is changing. Your business is ever changing. If you're not thinking about how are we evolving, and yes, you want to have a target for how the organization works, but not for this is the exact setup and this is exactly what we're going to do because you're going to measure and find out, oh, this data product that we thought was going to be like, super, super valuable. And, and it's very, very expensive to create Mm -hmm. only three, you know, 10% of it is used like Mm -hmm. these, this other 90% we never use. So let's pull off that, um, you know, the complications of, of creating that and just go with that 10% and that measurement and movement and, you know, having that conversation back and forth between the teams is, is super important. And, and yeah, the whole, um, technology, especially people want to know what tech do I use or even what architecture. It's like people process is far more important because you have to be able to, to do people, this. Not the people. Yeah. <laughs> it's and, not the people. And working together. Well, yeah, the number of times I, I talk to people and they go, yeah, we had this uh, revelation when we t- put the data consumers and the data producers in the same room. It's mm-hmm. like they never talked. What? <laughs> I think that's, that's awesome. just... Such a, a crazy thing. So did you have anything else you wanted to add there? Should we jump to number four? No, I'm, I'm good. Okay. So number four, your organizational culture does not empower bottom-up decision-making. So what were you thinking about here? Yeah. So this is another side of the same coin as the previous point. Um, people in, in the box, you know, people are empowered to get things done quickly. And, and that means they have to learn quickly and course correct quickly and potentially make mistakes. Um, it's okay to you know go the wrong way as long as as you realize it quickly, right? And you 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 change and you course correct. And people need to feel safe um, to try out different things and to fail. It doesn't mean you can try everything indefinitely and you can fail indefinitely. That's where um, I think SRE practices like innovation tokens and service level objectives come in. Um, but the point is. People have to feel safe to do the best work. And without psychological safety, you, you might have people building data sets, but they don't share it because they're afraid that people may blame them if you know they find a problem in that data set or people noticing that something's wrong with the data set or in the pipeline, but not saying anything. 
and uh, it's not a good place to be in when you're trying to decentralize everything, right? When when you you don't have, um, you can't have a tight grip over everything that's going on. You have to trust people to to get what they need done. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's the point here. Everyone wants to do their best work, and it's hard to adopt such a big change if if people are not excited about data management. They're not excited about trying out these things, and they're just fearful about it. So I think the point here is about making people excited, right? And building a culture that that empowers people to to feel safe, to learn, and to try new things, and to 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 do their best work. You yeah, I mean, I think if you give somebody, if you say, "I'm giving you the autonomy to go do this," you'll be surprised at how many people their eyes light up. And and if if they're not super excited about having that autonomy, that that might be something where they're not really prepared to be in that that agile type culture. But that you also have that centralized safety net. Right. Like that you have that that psychological safety, but you also have, OK, this isn't I'm I'm telling you, you have to go do all of these things on your own. I'm empowering you to make the decisions, but I'm giving you the ability to to work with a more centralized team when you have questions and that we've got that centralized sharing and that centralized like togetherness. And but yeah, so I, I really like this this one because. I think if every decision has to be made bottom up, that's obviously a, a challenge, but you give people the freedom to, and the trust, right? People, mm-hmm. when they feel trust and empowered and given autonomy, they're much happier and they're, um, they can go and do amazing things versus everything has to be approved. It slows down your agility and it, it means that you have brain drain of, of a lot of your best people. So mm-hmm. that's kind of been proven repeatedly by lots of different studies. <laughs> so. Um, so if you, are you good on that? Did you want to add yeah. anything more there? I, I really I really like the point you said about having a kind of centralized safety net. So uh, data mesh as a decentralized architecture kind of emphasize um, the fact that you know you want you want everything to be decentralized, but the role of the central team is so important. They don't just build the data platform, right? They're the people who who've made mistakes before. They, they, they're the experts in the infrastructure. Yeah. They're, they're the experts in, let's say, data modeling or something like that. They know how to do these things well, and they're just coping with you know the amount of work by not doing everything themselves and empowering everyone else to do it. So they, you know, they, they should be more like um, internal consultant, right? They're there to help everybody else and to be that safety net when, when people need it so that they can go and learn and do all these things that they wanted to do before, but they never had the chance to. So yeah, I really, really like that point you said about the, the role of the centralized team and the, the safety net. And I think that's on the governance side too, of, of empowering instead of gatekeeping of, no, you can't have access. Like, How do we think about um, the access by default and that you know when we're putting the governance decisions on the domain teams when they feel comfortable to make it. When they don't, there is a centralized body that they can go and ask and go, you know, I really don't understand this relative to GDPR. Okay, great. We're going to, we're going to jump in there and we're going to help you instead of, you know, you must comply with these 73 things and they're not really in a language that you understand and that the platform team is, is putting things into to make making governance decisions easy mm-hmm. instead of you know you you uh, domain team have to now 
own and operate your own governance uh, tooling system. No, that needs to be part of the platform to, to give them the ability to make those decisions. How, how many times have you read some guidelines and it say something like, you must have appropriate encryption in place. And, you know, the key word is appropriate. <laughs> what does appropriate means? Tell me what appropriate means and no one can tell you what it means. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, exactly you, exactly that. You have to think about it from, from the perspective that you're there to help them, right? And, and get them, get to what they need to do quicker. Um, it's, it's not about gatekeeping. So, yeah, great point. And, and I think that's kind of where the role of the CDO goes. If, if there's kind of two different roles of the enablement and empowering and, and kind of that central backdrop, but it's also then to start pairing more with um, other, you know, C-level execs to start to drive their strategy decisions via data, that you start to infuse that. But I think a big part of that at the start is just like, how do you create that culture of, of safety net and, and empowerment? So I, yeah. I like a lot of what you're saying there too. So, 100%. Um, so for number five, uh, you do not have clearly established roles and responsibilities and incentive structure for distributed data teams. So what were you thinking about here? Yeah, so <clears throat> this is a bit of a difficult one, right? We had a chat about this offline. Yeah. Um, it's not... To me, it's not about putting people into boxes. It's it's about making sure people know what they are supposed to do, that they are feel you know empowered to do it, and they know that they're going to be rewarded for it in the end of the day. Um, I think the incentive structure is such an important part of data mesh. Um, how do I know I'm doing a good job? How do I know I'm building a useful product, right? And you know, my title today is business analyst, and suddenly I'm doing all these airflow and DBT and Grafana and whatnot. Like, am I doing the right role for the team? Am I being rewarded accordingly for that? It's a tough one, and you know, I I'm not a HR expert. I don't know how to solve it, but I know that people can't thrive unless they're getting you know positive reinforcement, right, on whether they're doing the right thing or not, and they feel rewarded for it. And that's this point about roles and responsibility. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, well, and I think my my nitpick on it, which I think once we started talking, I don't think was a fair nitpick, was the the word clearly or the the phrase clearly established roles. Because I think when you're first starting, you have to be agile about your organization. You have to take that team topologies type approach of you have you have responsibilities and you have people that those responsibilities are on, and that you try and paint the whole picture as to, or you have to have full coverage as to here's what we're trying to accomplish, you know, for the next three months. And here, you know, so we need to assign out these responsibilities, but like, do we have to have fully mapped out those roles from the beginning? And I think what you talked about um, in, in a lot of the previous ones of, of being agile, you know, I, I think especially number three, when you talked about, you know, the, the target instead of being agile, I think we need to have that from a role, like literal role standpoint, right? Like an HR role standpoint. But I agree with you as to we need to find those proper bucketing of responsibilities. So it's not just like you team have these 15 responsibilities. Here's your checklist. Somebody got these versus like, mm -hmm. hey, it really makes sense for the owner to own these three things, you know, to right. make to, to own kind of the final governance decisions 
and, you know, when they need to, to talk to a centralized team or not. And, you know, but the uh, data product developer should be doing the data modeling and, you know, figuring out the um, tooling to measure when the application model change might break the data model change. And then who is going to be kind of the main point of contact to your consumers and, you know, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. I think it makes perfect sense. And, And the incentive structure as well. I haven't found a a really good outside of giving people cake. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good one. That is a really, really good one. <laughs> I, I think it's just, it's one of those things of just like, it feels ridiculous, but at the same point, then that person can take a picture and then, you know, but that we start to talk about that this is good for your, your career. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't want to pay down tech debt because it doesn't, in a lot of organizations, it doesn't make your career, right? It's not the thing. It's the new features. It's the new product. It's the new. So we have to talk about that aspect as well. And that it's not just you're doing the right thing. So yay. It's, it's that we, we, you know, align career progression and we align, um, you know, monetization and things like that as well, but that we, we kind of do all of it at once and that it's not just, we're going to pay people, more if they're doing the the data products right and it's like well then does that lead to gamification of measuring and all that stuff mm-hmm. versus like we need to create a structure that makes sense that gets people bought in and they feel like they're valued as well so i i, I think it's it's a very deep topic that i'm that i get weaker and weaker on the more that i say more <laughs> sentences on so you know, it's uh, and it, it's about the people once again, right? Um, there's this uh, there's this analogy I've heard which I, I really like. Um, think about um, a, a football match. You call it soccer in uh, <laughs> by, you know by in a in a primary school, right? Um, all the kids are just chasing the ball. They're just all chasing the ball, all ten of them or whatever. And um, you know, like. Is that the best way to play? No, like people need to know where they should be on the field, you know, so that um, they can work together and achieve a common goal together. Um, and I think that's what this this point about roles and responsibility. It's about figuring out what works and then giving people the structure so that they can, you know, follow to 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 be successful in their job. And it's about understanding. Okay, well, I am a uh, data engineer my job is to enable these 10 um, analytics engineers who are building you know dbt model on top of my database that i've built in and all these analysts are facing they know who they're supposed to talk to right they're facing into the business uh, stakeholders and they know what's important for them they have the context and they can build the things that are useful for those people and you know instead of having the data engineer directly talking to the business, you know, uh, stakeholders or the, the an- analysts um, talking to the data engineer. So, like, it's about it's about optimizing it and giving people the means to be successful and not making them figure it all out, you know, on their own. And I think this is where you, you asked me at the beginning, like, what are the things that we need to talk more about and figure out how to set up uh, to, so that people can be successful. I think this is one of those areas, right? Like, yeah. what is the successful team model of building a data mesh? Okay, so we know there's a domain and there's a data product owner, but then how are, is that team structured? How do they be successful, right? And I hope, you know, we can have more conversations around that and figuring out what's successful and what works and what doesn't work. 
And, and it's organizational dependent, right? Like there isn't a, a cookie cutter model for it, but it, there is ones that work and ones that don't, right? And so the more we yeah. can share about what's work, but yeah. And I, I think um, the football slash soccer analogy works much better than like American football, where you have very, very strict roles and people can't do certain things based mm-hmm. on what role they are. You know, the keeper can do specific things, you know, within, uh, you know, soccer slash football, but everybody else, you know, if uh, the the striker may be pulling back to do some defending and things like that, you know, like there's overlapping runs. There's all these things where they're, you, you kind of support each other as a team, as a domain, but that mm-hmm. there are clear kind of general responsibilities that, that people have as well. And so that it, it is, and you have your formation to say, are we, more attacking or more defending, you know, are we a five, four, one or something like that. And it's just all, all um, defense versus, you know, a four, three, three is, is much more of an attacking style. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and that's a clear um, common objective, right? Like we all know yeah. what we're here to do and this is how we're going to achieve it together. I think that's super exactly. Important. Yeah. I like that. So, um, so number six, uh, you do not have a critical mass of data talent. So what were you thinking about here? Yeah. So you know what makes people afraid of data mesh? Um, it's it's the question about how is this going to affect my role, right? Uh, some people are gaining responsibilities that didn't expect to gain, and then some people are losing responsibilities. Um, and I think the point I really wanted to make here more than anything is you got to train your people, you need to give them the tools to be successful in this new world and empower them to learn and um, do what they need to do and, you know, to, to, to be successful in this new world. So, so maybe I'm naive, right? I don't, <laughs> but I, I think that's how you gain a critical mass of, of data talent. And, and by data talent, I really mean everyone, right? It's not just an engineers. Yeah, to some extent, you can hire contractor engineers, but when they leave, you lose all of the knowledge that they learn. And so much of data mesh is about learning how to do things. Um, and it's the people that makes a difference. So uh, it's the people that try it first, right? The people who have taken the plunge and gone into it with their putting the career on the line to try out this new thing that um, that are going to have to become the leaders to, to train everybody else. And I think that's how you build you know, a, a, a successful culture and you spread the data mesh uh, to build, you know, organizational knowledge about how to how to um, how to do it well, how to be successful in this new world. Um, and that's that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not about oh, you got to go and hire a bunch of people right now. It's about how how do we make our existing people successful and you know give them a roadmap to to being successful in this new world. Yeah, and, and I I. I don't remember if I said that I fully agree with this, but I do fully agree with this uh, based on what we're, we're talking about here, because one, I think you need to have the critical mass to be able to understand what your data challenges are to be able to create a successful platform, right? You have to have enough people to create a platform because if all you're doing is saying, domain teams, you now have to share your data in this way and you're not giving them the tools to do so mm-hmm. and the expertise and the the backdrop help of, oh, nobody on the domain team knows how to data model. So do we right. put a data engineer into that team or do we give them the tools and we start slow and say, okay, 
this is just kind of your early days around um, creating your data model and things like that, like whatever. There's there's lots of different ways to do that. But um, I think then you also have to think about the critical mass on understanding consumptive patterns and being able to train additional people to level up your overall data literacy and, and things like that. So yeah. I think you're, you're taking on way too much if you don't have enough people and enough overhead to try to get this moving forward. And so I don't know what that critical mass level is. It might be different for different organizations, but I agree that you know, when I talk to people that are like, yeah, our data engineering team is is five or eight people and we want to do data mesh. It's like mm -hmm. there needs to be far better understanding of tooling and integration of tooling and like a, a slow run process to build up your data sharing capabilities mm -hmm. that there's more people that are talking about that, like very specific before you, you get there. Like I just, right. you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Yeah. No, I think it's it's okay to start with a small data engineering team, right? Just as long as you figure out how to get them to learn and how do you get them to start enabling other people, you know? Um, so everything they do, so, you know, in the SRE world, you, you're like 50% of your time um, dealing with issues, 50% of your time trying to automate your job away, right? Like everything you're doing this year and the next year you should no longer be doing. And that's sort of the approach that the data engineers need to take. It's like, what are the things that people are doing that's producing toil and causing delays and getting value? Let's automate all that stuff, right? So that the next time, you know, they can get it done quicker. And everybody kind of needs to start adopting that kind of mentality. Uh, and it has to be a journey. It cannot be, you know, let's hire 100 engineers today and then hope that tomorrow they'll, you know, we'll have a data mesh. So I, I don't think that will work. That, that's the old, um, uh, if it takes one woman nine months to, uh, to have a baby, what if you split that up and it was uh, nine women for one month each? It's like, right, it's not right. the way it works. But, but right. kind of what you're talking about, I think, is also the um, slow build towards data mesh, where I don't think that you even have to have that kind of end target of data mesh. When you've got a team of five, ten people that centralization, you don't need to have that decentralization. They can still be a centralized team and they don't have to move to only being a data platform team, right? Like they, there, there still is like that central ownership of things because there are certain things where you you can't build the, the tooling for the very complex use cases to make it so that the domain teams can share all the data that they need, but that you, you're building that team muscle as to, just sharing data and it doesn't have to be in a data mesh way. It's sharing data. Yeah. Yeah. It's about making data more accessible so that people can get what they need done. Um, and you know, like uh, the, the best way to start with a data mesh and I've noticed this a few times, right? Find the people who are the most hungry, who really wants that data, but are struggling to get it. They can be, you know, a data consumer. They can be, you know, the data scientists are struggling to get the data that they need or you know the data producers who are really struggling to get the insight out of the data because everything's stuck in the system they can't access or, or run your know, analytics query and and just make them successful right just like okay i'm i'm not going to give you you know the data that you're asking for but i'm going to give you all these tools so that you can go and do it yourself and and 
you start with those people. <laughs> and then slowly, slowly, you can get to a point where you have the database. You don't have to start all out at, the, at once. Yeah, and, and, and I just thought of uh, an interesting through line from that, of back to number two of you need the strong business case for the, the business units. What I'm hearing from a lot of people is the first consumers from Data Mesh are typically the other application developer teams that were like trying to stitch together all this information that they didn't have access to from other systems. And they were, they were trying to do this like Frankenstein's monster type query. And so it's kind of interesting that, that I fully agree that, and like intentionality around your data, what do you share and, and things like that? If you don't have that, that maturity level of being able to talk about why this matters, it's mm-hmm. going to be difficult. So. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add on the low engine? Okay. So for uh, number eight, you expect to find off-the-shelf software to help you adopt data mesh 100%. Yes. So what were you thinking about here? So it's it's like the the stop of the the start of the the DevOps journey, right? Like suddenly there was DevOps software everywhere. Everyone's buying DevOps and then being really confused why they don't have it yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we're kind of in a similar space with data mesh and, you know, the tools, it doesn't fix everything. It's, it's, I've said it before, it's about the people. And yeah, if you, if you go into data mesh thinking you're gonna buy something and it's gonna fix everything and solve all your problem for you, 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 you're in for a bad time. You're not gonna get what you want. <laughs> It's it's the equivalent of um, saying I'm going to get in shape and then just buying some gym equipment and going why am I not in shape? Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. It's, it's and, a and, tough one, but yeah. And I think we'll get better on the tooling, but the tooling right now, especially, there's so much white space in between the tooling, and there's so many things where it goes well. This tool it helps me in these three ways, but I need it to help me to cover these five. And the tooling isn't extensible in the right ways where it's like, okay, I can do this with some aspects of my role, my own. Uh, So I either have to say, oh, this is good enough or, or I have to roll my own for all five of those, those pieces. And so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm hoping uh, I've been talking a little bit about some of the stuff around like metadata sharing and Mm -hmm. I want to see a lot more systems like, a data product should broadcast out all of its metadata. Right. And, and people are like, well, shouldn't you just push it into this other system? And it's like, no, you should have it broadcast it out. So that way, any system that's listening can bring that metadata in. And, and then, you know, all the other systems, if you can get them to broadcast out, great. But then you want to start to think about um, where did this metadata, you know, tagging where this metadata came mm-hmm. from. So that way you're not repeating the same metadata, you know, you don't have the same mm-hmm. Uh, thing that's come from nine different systems, it's all the same. But yeah. but I think that there's a, a lot of these expectations of, and vendors are trying to sell this as we just give you this capability as well. And, and so I, I don't think we'll ever have this as well as, you know, kind of what you talked about with the number three of a technical solution you're never going to be able to buy a data mesh, even if the tooling is the, the best thing ever. So mm-hmm. yes, you say to, to help you adopt data mesh, but like we're, we're way far away from even tooling that's really designed around data mesh. And then we're 
um, never going to get to a place where you can buy the the tooling that's just going to be like, okay, this is drop-in tooling and our platform is done. It's like, no, so much of this is yep. talking with your people and figuring out their, their specific needs. So, um, but I, I do want to, you know, give credit where it's due, right? There are really um, innovative, you know, startups and software out there that are really trying to solve, you know, metadata. I think metadata is the next big data. It's it's yeah. now, it's not big data, it's big metadata. How do you, you have lineage, you have all these pipelines generating all kinds of different data. Um, you have people, you know, copying data all over the place and, um, building reports and you know using data in ways that you've never used it before. So how do you track all of this, right? And and organize it and making coherent and you know accessible and discoverable and all that good stuff. It's it's a challenge. And you know I credits where it's due. There are some really really innovative startups out there that are doing this. So don't dismiss it at all. Just don't expect them to do everything for you. They're they're not right now, and 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 they never really will be everything for you. But the, yeah, I agree with you that there are a lot of people out there that are are uh, approaching things in, in a good way. And and I would say, you know, you're not here on behalf of of Google, but I would say like BigQuery also is something that I hear a lot because there are people that literally go, well, we're just going to do some stuff on GCP because BigQuery, I can just. I, I can do ELT. I can just dump stuff into here and then I can actually structure it. And then it's not like a pain to do this. So like I said, I wasn't going to, you know, talk about Google, but it blew my mind when I joined Google and I can just write SQL and everything works and it's fast and I don't have to babysit, you know, this spark pipelines that run for 12 hours and then fail (laughs) with a no error exception or something like that. So like I was, I was just really, really happy. So There are tools that will help you for sure. Yeah, I, I was amazed at how many people were just like, "Yeah, we're we're literally adopting GCP for this." So, um, so uh, number nine, uh, you do not have buy-in to shift left security, privacy, and compliance. So, what were you thinking about here? Yeah, I think this is part of the um, the Dora research. Uh, it's the numbers speak for itself, right? The team that shift left security, privacy, and compliance into the development process, deliver faster. They get more done. They deliver more value. They fail less often, and they recover quicker. Um, so in, in a world where everyone is moving quickly and shipping changes in smaller batches, um, you can't have a single review gateway at the end of everything that sets everybody back months if they fail it. Um, it doesn't work. You have to you have to make the changes smaller, right? Smaller, safer, more observable. So when it goes wrong, you know immediately that went wrong, and um, actionable in the end of the day. And all of this is done, you know, like oh, security, privacy has to be embedded into standard processes so that people understand why it matters, and and how to be, you know, how how to how to do what they need to be done. Um, and yeah, DevSecOps is kind of a new thing. And I think, I don't know, some people, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of controversial. It's like, oh, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think it's the only way to go. Yeah, I, I mean, I think DevSecOps, is, which for people that aren't um, familiar, it's developer security operations, right? And so um, I had a, a, a conversation with uh, Asmath Pasha, who was talking about... Um, uh, X ops and it's just everything, mm-hmm. something ops, you know, but <laughs> yeah. I do agree with you that it's, it's something where it's 
kind of unfortunately named, but it makes sense from the naming perspective. And it's, it's something that I, I agree with that it needs to, to happen. And I think this is where we talk about that federating governance, right? Mm-hmm. You, you still have the centralized team as that centralized bo- or, uh, backdrop. It's not the centralized bottleneck. It's the centralized safety net. So if you have questions about this, like especially for governance, you need to have kind of a, a CYA or, or a cover your behind type of approach to um, governance that where if people have questions, they have somewhere that they can go to to enable them. Right. But outside of that, you need to be trusting your teams because otherwise, why did you hire these people? Right. If you don't trust them, why did you hire them? Why are they on staff? Why, why are they working for you? So. Right. Um, and, and as you said, teams just perform better and uh, you're going to have better uh, retention and all that stuff as well. Right. right. Yeah. Like autonomy as an incentive is, is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> approach. So, um, And, I, you know, with security and privacy, we, we, we think about failures as, as this end of the world. Uh, I mean, the, the, the way that we have to think about failure in, you know, taking inspiration from Esarino is it's, it's a systems problem, right? It's not a personal problem. It's not. So when I'm asking teams to shift left security, privacy and compliance, I'm not saying you're now responsible for security and I am not. I'm saying, how do we build an ecosystem so that we can prevent people from making these kind of mistakes? How do we make sure that the guardrails are put in place so that when people veer out of the guardrails, they are notified immediately and no change is done and things has been reverted back immediately. So, yeah, I think it's, it, and, and once again, yeah, you, you have to trust people. You, failing is, is, is expected um, and it's a way to learn. And how, how do you make failing as, as harmless as possible? That's probably the goal of, of you know, all of this, right? Otherwise, you can't, you can't stop failing from happening. Yeah. I, I... I think the high tolerance for failure is very important and it's psychological safety, but it's also, you know, I think people are really, really afraid of GDPR. And if, if, if you think about yep. what the EU has done thus far with GDPR and things like that, mm-hmm. it's teams that had an issue. I haven't seen anybody get fined for having a singular issue, right? Where they go, or, or it's a very, very small fine or something like that, where they go, hey, we were really trying. We can show you we were really trying and we just didn't code this in the right way. And we, we had the intentionality and we were doing that. I don't think regulators are out there to be malicious. People are afraid of them being malicious for the sake of being malicious. And it's like, they're not. They're there to to make sure that you're you're doing the right things, but it's not okay, there was, this thing was exposed for five minutes because somebody made a, a bad bucket permission or whatever, you know, okay. But like, yeah, how do we think about making it so that those failures are much easier to detect and that they're much harder to make? And right, that, exactly. yeah, so, so I fully agree with that. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add on that or? I'm going to refrain talking about GDPR because <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I could go on for ages. So, yeah, yeah. On, <laughs> I, I did. Uh, the ThoughtWorks folks had a, an interesting um, 
webinar a while back where they talked about what they actually had in some of their data mesh implementations was a um, GDPR request uh, data product. And mm-hmm. so everybody else, like, and so they actually have a legal reason to be able to keep that data infinitely even, mm-hmm. but, you know, they, they weren't, but um, that then all the other systems would check against this and go, do I have any of this PII in any of my systems? And so it could run against that. And it was like such a, like an amazing, like, whoa, that's a weird approach, but no, it makes perfect sense. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I have seen this before. Compliance is a a good reason to push people to change, right? And to do things better, right? Like with GDPR, um, there's the right to forget. So how I, I go to you as a corporation and say, Mr. Whatever Corporation, you have my data. I don't want you to have my data anymore. Can you please delete it? And it's such a difficult problem. <laughs> it is such a such a difficult problem to solve. But um, you know, but to solve it, you have to do all the things that's that's good for for data governance, right? Like you have to identify where the PII are. You have to separate it. You have to be able to identify the customer record. Um, and you need to have a system that would be able to go and delete the record, you know, on managing a retention policy yeah. on, on demand. And I think once you have that, it's actually really, really good for, for everyone. And you, you, you've managed to get the organization to do something that um, they wouldn't have never gotten together to do in the first place. So it's not such a bad thing. Yeah. I, I think it's quite an interesting space. It has it has value in, at the end, even if it's a, a pain to do. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and number ten, uh, you do not consider data governance to be a core activity to be prioritized against other activities in every data team's backlog. So what were you thinking about here? Yeah. Look, uh, the data world tends to be, you know, five. Um, I may get hated for this, but like five to eight years behind the infrastructure world. So DevOps is over. Well, we're not, we've figured out how to do DevOps pretty much, I think. We know how to do it well. And data mesh is just starting picking up all these new things. And, and data governance, I think we need to learn what worked and what didn't work in the security and privacy world, right? It's not, it's, it's, it, for example, you can't have a checkpoint right at the end of a process to approve a launch. You can't have a checkpoint right at the end of a data journey to say, now you need to produce a data catalog, right? Mm-hmm. Where are the metadata? Where are the tables? Where are the columns? You can't wait until the very end to do that. It needs to be embedded in the process of creating the data. We need to automate it, right? It can't be a spreadsheet. It needs to be an activity that's done by the engineers as they are creating the data itself. And it has to be part of everybody's workflow. That's, I'm, I feel very, very strongly about this. And you know, data mesh gives us a, a partial solution and that um, there is an owner for every piece of data asset, right? And suddenly you, you, you have um, defined a model where there is responsibility, federated responsibility to get things right. Um, and if you, you know, and this what produce data, you are the owner of that you know, data set. And here's the responsibility of, of owning a data set. There's, there's a carrot, right? You're going to have agility and ability to do whatever you need. But there's a responsibility that comes with that as well. It's like a CEO, you're managing, you, you want to generate value, but you also don't want to go to jail. <laughs> so it, it makes you think twice about, you know, for example, collecting data you don't need or leaving data lying around. I think it's better and safer for everybody. Um, and this is an area that's evolving very quickly, and I'm really excited to see 
you know, how things progress. Yeah, I think and the, the data governance as the enabler. So exactly what you talked about of you're going to create better data products if somebody isn't going, oh, I didn't do my documentation right. OK, I got to do this at the end. It's like right, right. Yeah. it's like it's not just like the checklist, but it's like, hey, here's the thing. And and um, you can maybe even create um, a uh, a potential list of consumers where I would say, you know, here, what, what are you sharing information about? Oh, OK, I'm going to then push you with the um, the potential consumers. And so you can get in a room and talk about what they might actually want and that it might shape your data product and that the governance mm-hmm. is even like measuring how um, other people are using data products. And, you know, that's part of the kind of overall mesh level. And so I think it's not just it's, it's, and it's showing people how I I think Mm -hmm. blueprints are really crucial because if people have to um, generate this stuff from their own heads, is is that on the governance team or the, or the platform team? I think it's more on the governance team to say, Hey, here, here is a core data model, right? Like Mm -hmm. we don't want to have a core data model that you have to uh, adhere to. We want an extensible core data model, but like for a lot of domains, especially for the first data products, it's fine to just be like, here's the data model that makes the most sense for a lot of things in our organization. So um, if you can keep your context while using this, great. Like you don't have to do that. And and a, a lot of and schema checks and all that stuff where you don't make people do manual things and things, but that you also yeah. give teams the ability to to do the right things at the right time. I, I fully agree with you that it's yeah. not just kind of at the end, it's the, oh, okay, here's my hurdle to jump over. It's like, no, this stuff's important and here's why. Right. And, and have you noticed how documentation is always outdated? Like that spreadsheet yeah. that you got about the data, like what is, that doesn't actually exist anymore. <laughs> so, you know, like you have to keep updating it. It has to be part of the menu uh, of, of like a regular process, right? And, and as a data governance team, it's about building processes so that it's easy. It's easy to get it right rather than saying you have to do this and actually giving people no support at all. So that's, that's another thing, I think, that like data governance has to learn from security and privacy. It has to become an engineering discipline. I don't think it can exist as an ivory tower function. Um, every CDO is probably going to have to think about how do I turn you know my organization into an engineering function so that I can empower everyone to do what they need to do and make sure that they're doing the right thing and the system and the processes and the tooling are to set up to ensure that the right thing is getting done. You know, that's I, that's I, the way I think about the world. I think a good tagline for for thinking about the data org within data mesh is, is exactly what you said: make it easy to get it right. <laughs> like as as simple as a, a a summation as that is, I think that's make that's, it really hard to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to write that down as well and make it hard to get wrong. Okay, so um, this has been phenomenal. I mean, we're, we're we're coming up on an hour here, so this is this has just been uh, fantastic. But um, did you have anything that you wanted to wrap with, or um, any any kind of some sum up thoughts for folks, or? as well as where, where can f- people find you? Uh, no, this has been uh, super fun. I, you know, I don't get to talk about this a lot. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, I'm still learning, right? So if, you, if something resonates or doesn't resonate or <laughs> you want to talk more about it, you can reach out to me on Twitter. 
Um, I'm Tinha. It's T H I N H H A at on Twitter. So yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll drop that, that in the show notes and I'll drop your LinkedIn as well as a, a thing to the, uh, a link to the article. And, but this, yeah, I, exactly what you said. The whole point of this podcast is learning out loud, right? It's not to be, I am the expert. It's to be, we're sharing our context. So this, this has just been great. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, it's a really fun thing to have on a, on a Friday. So, uh, <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Tim, for your, for your time and thank you everyone for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Tin Ha, who is a strategic cloud engineer and the author of a very good post called 10 Reasons Why You're Not Ready to Adopt Data Mesh. You can find his contact info and a link to that article in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.